Welcome to Fault Tolerant. Today I talked with Matteo Leibowitz about the blockcrypto.com, aka The Block, and decentralized finance. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. All right, so thanks a lot for coming on the show, Matteo. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Do you want to give us an idea of kind of how you got into crypto, uh, where you're from, and what you're doing now? Absolutely. So I was born and raised in London, in England, that is. Uh, These days I'm based out of New York. Uh, So I moved out here in 2013 for college. I was at Columbia. And I'm also a dual citizen, so uh, it means I get to stay out here uh, post-college. So started getting into crypto my freshman year of college, so this was 2013. I started messing around with uh, the Silk Road, which I just found pretty fascinating that you you could open up your computer and have pretty easy access to this uh, gray or, or, or black market site. Obviously, that required um, Bitcoin for uh, purchases. So that was my first real introduction to the crypto space. And then at the same time, uh, one of my very close friends, actually currently my roommate, started to develop this bot uh, in order to arb spreads across different crypto exchanges. So I know he was very active on Mt. Gox at the time and a couple others, I think Coinbase maybe in its early days. So then there was kind of a, a Silk Road got shut down. Uh, not that I was particularly active on Silk Road, but got shut down. And so there was this this three-year period where I wasn't particularly focused on, on the crypto space or interacting with uh, cryptocurrencies. And then 2016 rolled around and this same friend started uh, getting pretty involved in the Ethereum ecosystem. So he started working at Consensus and then later at doing some work for the Ethereum Foundation, working closely with Vitalik on some of the early uh, proof of stake specs. And he's obviously a very smart guy. And so when he gets excited about something, it's, it's definitely worth listening to him. So I started throwing a bit of money into Ether. And once I really had some some skin in the game, I I started to dig a bit deeper. And then by the time I graduated college, which was 2017, I just decided to continue pursuing this self-education in the crypto world. I just felt like I had I still had a, a ton to learn. And that also is this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to have a front row seat uh, to, to witness this emerging industry and, and technology develop. Um, so that led me to, to writing a weekly newsletter called Crypto Chat, where I was just aggregating and curating different kinds of content within the space. And then uh, in early 20, 2018, I, I actually founded a crypto venture of my own called Nash Hash which essentially is a, uh, an Ethereum-based platform for peer-to-peer game theory games using real economic incentives. So someone once referred to it as a draft kings for 
for nerds, which I think is a pretty accurate description. So what we did there was we, we built out an MVP, which is currently still live on uh, the Rink of Testnet. And we built out two games, the, the two-thirds average game and the lowest unique number game. We have some bots on there as well, so uh, you don't actually need other people to be playing in order to run through these different games. Uh, but but what I found really interesting about Nashash was um, the implications as far as actually uh, bringing third-party developers and researchers onto the platform and allowing them to build out their own games and models and testing out various different uh, kind of novel incentive structures. These days, I'm a research analyst at The Block. The Block was uh, founded, I think, back in October of 2018. It's a new blockchain, crypto media, and research outlet. You know, it really strives to be as impartial as possible, uh, which I think is really important in this space because, you know, there's a lot of different incentives at play. Obviously, that's the name of the game. And so finding kind of objective, data-driven research is uh, can, can definitely be quite difficult. The majority of the team is, is currently based out of New York. I'm one of them, but we also have people out in in Europe, in London, and in uh, the Czech Republic as well, or just Czech, I think it's called these days. And very excitingly, this week, uh, we actually launched the premium product, which is called Genesis. So the idea is to have uh, some of the the premium level research and analysis and, and some of the breaking news as well behind the paywall and then uh, continue to offer some amount of content in front of the paywall as well. Right. Yeah, so this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Most of the products on the internet are free to use, but the result of us needing these products to be free has been that they're ad-driven. And then the result of that the these ad-driven models is that they optimize for clicks, which produces tends to produce low quality content like clickbait content that kind of thing and it's also resulted in just people who write having sometimes a hard time uh, making a living doing it so i think i think we're going to need more of these kinds of models where there's some paywall aspect and i think so i think what the block is doing is is interesting and i think it's a good idea yeah, absolutely. I think it's. Uh, I certainly think it's sensible. Um, there's kind of two different perspectives you can take. You know, there's the the consumer's perspective, and then there's the the business's perspective. So, you know, if you don't just merely want to, as a business, if you don't want to just rely on ad revenue, and the way to really drum up ad revenue is to get as many uh, views as possible, which uh, oftentimes requires uh, taking a more clickbaity approach to content, then then you need to figure out some kind of alternative source of revenue. Uh, I think a, a paywall model works well, and obviously, it's it's worked pretty well for New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times. But uh, but I think there are also some very interesting alternative models out there as well. One that I'm particularly fond of is just the the micropayments model. So paying on a per article basis, 
and there's lots of different cool ways that you can play around with that. Uh, so one company that I've seen, I can't quite remember their name, but they actually use like a an auction to determine how much one should be paying to read a particular article. And you can kind of adjust the price dynamically based on demand. But yeah, as a consumer, it, it definitely kind of sucks. <laughs> Best case scenario is that you, you can continue to consume this high quality content for free. And I think there's there's a lot of parallels to be drawn between the media industry and also the music industry, which obviously suffers a lot from torrenting. Music industry seems to be doing relatively well now that these popular streaming services have emerged, but I think they continue to make most, uh, I think musicians continue to make most of their money from concerts and, and merchandise. So it's about finding the right balance. Yeah, I think I think the micropayments angle is actually, I think it will become more viable. I think one of the reasons that micropayments don't really work right now is just our payment infrastructure. If every time I go to a website, I need to pull out my credit card and spend 50 cents, that's just too much friction. It's It's not worth like a dollar. It's almost not worth a dollar for me to, have to get the credit card and enter all the data but if your browser had a certain amount of money loaded in it like what bad is trying to do then i wouldn't mind if every time i read an article it it charged me you know like 25 cents or 50 cents and i think most users out there actually wouldn't mind that it's not so much the the cost it's just the hassle and the friction absolutely yeah so uh i'm not familiar with the with the um project that that you referenced but you know even having something just like metamask right which you could load funds into and then stays in your browser and and you can just work from there but yeah absolutely you know one of the problems i guess with with the subscription model is that you know it kind of restricts you to one or two platforms that you're actually willing to subscribe to but obviously there's a ton of amazing content being produced across a variety of platforms. So, you know, if you can pay on a, a per article basis, then you don't actually have to contend with just kind of being forced into into one particular media platform. But yeah, it's a it's definitely an interesting experiment. And I think Genesis right now is going with a thousand dollar a year, thousand dollar a year price point. And so it's certainly targeted more towards prosumers, I think is the word that they use, so professionals and, you know, active uh, consumers of content in this space. It's not hugely friendly to uh, just a casual retail audience, but I'm pretty supportive of, of the price point that they've gone with. And yeah, it will definitely be interesting to, to continue to monitor how it's received over the coming months. Yeah, and as you say, some percentage of the articles will continue to be free to read. So it'll be sort of sort of like the medium model where most articles or some articles are free to read and then some are uh, behind the paywall. Yeah, I think that's uh, what they're going for. And, uh, and yeah, I don't think it's sensible to just paywall all the content, especially at this stage in the block's life cycle. You know, they still need to 
continue building out a, a, a brand of their own. Um, and so you need the the free content to kind of capture people's imagination and actually drive them towards the, the paid product. All right. So what I was thinking we would talk about today is, well, we were going to talk about some of the emerging trends in crypto for 2019. And then we started making this list and I ended up with just a ton of decentralized finance stuff. So maybe we'll just talk about some of this decentralized finance stuff and then uh, see where we get. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's definitely a good place to start. Yeah. So I'm really thinking that decentralized finance is going to be the sort of the Trojan horse for digital money. So like Bitcoin's been around for 10 years now and the core product that they're offering hasn't really changed a whole lot. You know, it's essentially been digital gold and it still is digital gold. And there's obviously been some adoption and there's been an increase in adoption. But if we only had Bitcoin, if we just had like a digital money, I don't know how long the the, uh, mainstream adoption would take. I think that with decentralized finance on Ethereum, you're seeing this entire uh, set of tools and mechanisms that are sort of supporting the money that's at the heart of it. And I think the the value that's being added to this this digital money, to Ethereum, I think that is can potentially drive the adoption of digital money faster than it would happen with Bitcoin. Yeah, I'm uh, unsurprisingly, I'm, I'm with you on, on that front. One, one interesting thing that I like to think about is, is the way that these um, kind of narratives around adoption have been formed when it comes to Bitcoin and, and Ether. So with Bitcoin, the, the, the popular narrative is that Bitcoin will start out as a collectible. And I think it's you know, probably still kind of in that uh, bracket right now. And then it will eventually emerge into this store of value. And then beyond that, it will become a medium of exchange. And then finally, it will reach this uh, unit of account status. And what I find interesting about Ether is that it, it really takes a, a different approach, which is that it, it starts with utility. And so it, it starts with providing these various applications, whether those be decentralized finance or something a bit less serious like, uh, you know, uh, gaming or non-fungible tokens, uh, whatever. It starts with utility, and then it's actually the, the utility itself that drives the store of value and the medium of exchange and the unit of account features. And I think and I think those those last three features actually uh, are, are all pretty interconnected. I don't think they come in distinct phases. I think mm-hmm. uh, they're all kind of self-reinforcing. Yeah, I think the the utility aspect is really powerful. So there's the way I've been thinking about it is that there's an entire new financial system that's being built on Ethereum, and it's so it's digital native it's open to anybody it doesn't have any notion of borders or anything like that and the existing financial instruments and mechanisms that exist on the like the legacy financial system those mechanisms are being ported over uh, to this new financial system and made more efficient in the process um, redesigned to some extent 
And then there's at least the possibility of entirely new financial mechanisms to be invented. So people can take the primitives that people are building and compose them into into entirely new things. Uh, so I thought we could go through a few of the sort of aspects of decentralized finance that are either under development or working right now. Uh, the first one I wanted to talk about a bit was lending. So there's a, there's a, a couple projects that are implementing uh, lending on, on Ethereum. Uh, I think the main ones are Compound and Dharma. Have you had a chance to look much at Dharma or uh, Dharma Lever, their new product? Lever, I haven't played around with. I think it's still in. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, I think it's still in its like uh, alpha um, stage. So I think there might be some kind of waitlist in order to to sign up to that one. Um, Compound, I have played around with definitely, and yeah, Compound is is definitely one of the best DApps on the market right now. Uh, was the the first dap to come out with a with an easy uh user experience and and an attractive uh user interface and and that really goes a long way um one uh, what's interesting is that you 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 didn't include um maker in the lending category right i guess i guess it should be in there shouldn't it which i which i think probably deserves to be in there and and one question I have when it when it comes to Compound, you know, I'm a huge fan of what they're doing right now, uh, and they really have pu- pushed push the envelope to date. Uh, one question I have though is is how they will eventually compete with Maker when uh, multi collateral die is is introduced. Mm-hmm. So on on Compound, do do you have to collateralize your loans? So if I want to borrow some some ether do i have to i do have to uh lock some ether up don't i you do so it's the exact same collateralization ratio as uh maker which is 150 percent what's interesting is that i I think compound is currently working towards a v2 and under v2 of compound different assets will have different collateralization ratios based on their different risk profiles so if I'm putting up Ether as collateral, then maybe I have to maintain 150%. If I'm putting up REP or uh, ZRX as collateral, then maybe I have to main a 250%. Right. Yeah, so the, the collateral ratio is really like a measure of, of volatility, I guess, isn't it? Because if, if you were collateralizing with something like USDC, you'd think you wouldn't need to over collateralize very much because we don't expect it to fluctuate in value. Whereas something like ether, you need a higher ratio because the value could drop 20% or 30% pretty quickly. Yeah, um, that's exactly it. So I think if you, if you were using USDC or GUSD as collateral, then you could probably just use like a hundred percent collateralization ratio. I don't see why you'd really need anything above that. Um, but yeah, it's about volatility and it's about liquidity as well. So, you know, how liquid are these markets if 
your collateral falls below a certain threshold and it needs to be liquidated, can you actually get a certain amount of value out of that collateral on the market? Right. Uh, and then one of the things you can do, like I, I got on the wait list for Dharma Lever and I got in, although I haven't. Congrats. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. I haven't actually loaned out any Ether. Um, I think I'll wait a little bit longer and make sure nothing bad seems to happen. But another thing you can do too when with these lending platforms is you can you can short the token that they support, right? Like if I wanted to short Ether, I could use USDC, get a loan, like I could lock up some USDC, get a loan of Ether, sell it, and then I just have to buy Ether back before my loan is due, right? I, I think you could do that with Dharma Lever. I mean, I think that's part of the, the purpose of Dharma Lever. Yeah, absolutely. And you and you can do that on Compound right now as well. Um, and that's, again, just a, a spectacular use case and something I'm very, very in favor of. Um, so, you know, up until these money markets essentially had, had emerged, so there wasn't really an easy way to build short exposure to these assets. And, and that leads to inefficient price discovery. So having the option to short should really um, help the market uh, derive a, uh, a fairer value, if, if you will. Although it, it's pretty difficult to determine uh, what the fair value of any asset of any of these assets should be right now. Um, what's interesting is is you know I have the compound markets up right now. Last time I checked uh, Blockboard, the the all the rates were uh, were pretty similar to what Compound was matching. Uh, what what Compound was offering even? You mean the lending rates? The lending rates, yeah. So, you know, borrow rates. So, uh, if you wanted to borrow wrapped ether right now on Compound, you'd be paying seventeen point six nine percent on an annual basis, which, you know, is is pretty expensive, right? And so you have to be really really confident in your shorting ability if you're going to borrow at at that kind of rate. You know, obviously that should fall as these markets become more liquid, but it's definitely going to take time for uh, liquidity to, to be bootstrapped. Yeah, I wonder what the interest rates will settle at because I'm looking at the Dharma Lever interface right now and the interest rate to borrow is 0.1% APR. Um, but it, that's quite a bit lower, isn't it? That is a lot lower, although um, my understanding of how Dharma works is that it, it's more like a um, order book structure. So anybody can say, okay, I'm going to offer this rate over this time period, whereas Compound uses like a, a similar mechanism to, to Uniswap. So um, rates are just adjusted based on uh, supply and, and demand. So that's pretty amazing that they're offering ETH at 0.1%, but I'd be interested to see like how much is actually being lent at, at, at that uh, price. Does it, does it anywhere? Or? The interface I'm looking at just show, shows the rate and the term and a borrow limit of 250 ETH. That's a lot of ETH. Yeah, it's quite a bit. <laughs> uh, one more point on lending 
like the total broad money supply, broad money being all the cash, uh, money in bank accounts, and like that kind of money that's not locked up in, you know, in stocks or something like that. That's about $90 trillion, which is pretty huge. But the global debt market is $200 trillion. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to put it in perspective. Like when I first heard about lending on like these systems for lending on Ethereum, I kind of thought, yeah, that's that's super cool. But it's kind of it seemed like a secondary thing or like a maybe less important than than the money use case. But but no, the global debt market is absolutely huge. Another market that is insanely large is derivatives. This is a really cool project, DYDX. Uh, they they're building tokenized derivatives. So you could have, I mean, they're, they're going to support all manner of derivatives. So futures, options, shorts. Uh, I actually not, I'm not sure about swaps. I don't know if, if they're going to support that or how that would work, but these uh, derivatives are going to be tokenized and then they can be traded like any other, any other token. Um, and the, the derivatives market is on the high end, the high end estimates are 1.2 quadrillion. So that's essentially 1200 billion or 1200 trillion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is an insane figure. Have you looked at DYDX much? I have, um, although not in the last couple months. So I definitely need to kind of uh, refresh my memory of what's going on there. I think I earn uh, $10 worth of short ETH tokens. Uh, I bought those a couple months back, so they're probably worth a bit more than $10 now. Um, yeah, you might want to cash in on those. Yeah, if I can find them somewhere in, in, in my MetaMask account. But, uh, but yeah, just another uh, fascinating use case, really. Uh, don't have a huge amount to say there, but you know, as you said, the derivatives market is, I think, probably the, the biggest market in the world. I'm thinking whether it's bigger than real estate, but it probably is uh, in, when it's measured in the quadrillions. Um, one one question I have when, when it comes to platforms like DYDX and, and Compound and Dharma is, uh, you know, obviously these markets are massive. The question is, how do these platforms actually capture value or have they been built in a way that they purposely don't capture value, which would also be okay. Um, so I, I never quite figured out how the compound team actually makes money, but I presume it's just from making markets themselves. Do you, do you have any insight there? No, I don't know. That's something I've thought about too, though, is, some of these protocols are like Uniswap, for example, which I think we'll talk about in a few minutes, but Uniswap captures zero value as far as I can tell for the the people who've created it. I think it's really one guy who's created it. That's kind of the mission in crypto is to build systems that are, have absolutely no middleman. But I think this might be an unpopular opinion, but I think we need to strike some kind of balance between not being a middleman that just takes huge, takes a huge cut because there's no other option or because they have some network effect that's hard to beat. 
and you know and paying the developers like if these if these protocols are going to power a new economy they need to have probably full-time people working on them maybe forever right if you have a system like dydx and there's a hunt one and a half quadrillion dollars essentially relying on it then i think it's well worth the the cost to have a few developers at least who are full-time just dedicated to maintaining that protocol making it more secure that kind of that kind of thing so i think we're going to need to find some way in crypto to fund the develop either the protocol needs to be built in such a way that it can support some people maintaining it, or we need some kind of secondary system that's outside of the protocol itself, kind of like what they're doing with the Moloch DAO that allows, allows us to fund development somehow. Yeah. I'm, I completely agree with you there. You know, that. At, at first, at least, I think there are ways for if there are no kind of explicit fees involved in actually using these platforms, still think there are ways for uh, developers to see some kind of return, which is, as we discussed, making markets themselves. Um, so Hayden, who, who's the, uh, the founder of Uniswap, you know, what he could do is actually start lending out, uh, not lending out, sorry, providing some liquidity in these markets. And uh, there is a 0.3% fee on each trade. So, you know, he could see some kind of return there. Similarly with Compound, you know, the Compound team, I expect is probably making markets themselves. And if you look at something like Vale as well, which I know we're going to touch on in a second, but Vale is actually currently in the process of hiring a prop trader in order to make markets on their platform. The problem is, though, is that, you know, these teams may not necessarily have the expertise to make markets and compete with more experienced market makers as well. And then the question is, as well, is that, you know, if these markets suddenly get super, super efficient because there's a ton of market makers involved then obviously the spreads start to fall and uh, their revenue is going to fall as well uh, then you know can they can they continue to make enough money from market making to sustain development kind of questionable but yeah i think this question as far as incentivizing development uh, in a system that really encourages disintermediation is super, super pertinent right now. And, you know, it's not, it doesn't just apply to these uh, decentralized applications. It also obviously applies to core protocol development as well. Moloch DAO is definitely interesting. I know you discussed that on one of your previous podcasts. And I wrote something about it a couple of weeks ago. Very excited to see where that goes. I think they already have over a hundred thousand ether in the uh, treasury right now. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I think that's from twelve, perhaps maybe twelve or fifteen different uh, contributors. So it'd be interesting to see uh, what kind of projects they decide to allocate that money to. Um, 
But I also think that there are some kind of problems with Moloch. I don't think it necessarily completely solves the tragedy of the commons, at least not the way that it's structured right now. Um, so, uh, and, and, you know, if this ecosystem continues to grow, then they're going to need hundreds of millions, if not uh, hundreds of billions of dollars to support all the various forms of activity that are taking place. Mm-hmm. Right now they have a hundred thousand, which isn't going to go too far. Was that a hundred thousand dollars or a hundred thousand ETH? hundred thousand dollars. So I think uh, okay, yeah. each of these yeah. different contributors um, added a hundred ETH each. Right. Yeah. So they just launched. They they launched like at 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 Denver, I think. So yeah. So they're they're pretty new still. So yeah, yeah. And I'm uh, you know I'm probably going to uh, contribute myself and and really. To participate in that experiment very very supportive of what they're doing um but uh definitely remains to be seen whether they can uh, make a significant difference and and really solve some of these incentive incentive issues that play in this space mm-hmm. yeah yeah I'm, I'm really excited to see some of the DAOs coming online this year that, that's for another episode, but I'd love to talk about DAOs sometimes. Yeah, I find that absolutely. So, so fascinating. They are, they are. Yeah, so the next thing I wanted to talk about was uh, baskets and sets. So the, the notable project here is Set Protocol. I, I think there's another project implementing something similar, but I think Set is the sort of the, the most well-known. And I find this really cool. Basically, you can... You can create a contract where let's say you had three tokens and you wanted to, you had three tokens like ABC, DEF, GHI, (laughs) and you wanted to create some way to have a single token that represents all of those tokens. And you can do that with set. You would, in this example, you might, you might pay one of each of those three tokens into the contract and then get one token that represents the set of those tokens. So, and then if you wanted to get your three tokens you deposited back, you would just give the contract your your set token and it would burn it and return your proportional share of the deposited tokens. I mean, it's, it's a pretty simple concept, but you can do some really interesting things with that, right? You can, the most obvious example maybe is doing indexes. So you could have, you could have some set of a like you could create a set of a whole bunch of decentralized finance tokens and you could have it set to some ratios so you know it's like 20 percent this token 30 percent this token and as the as the prices change it could rebalance so it maintained that ratio across those tokens and then the users of the contract could just buy these set tokens and have exposure to the whole decentralized finance space which would you know function just like an index um yeah. have you looked at set yeah set? i haven't looked uh, I, i'm aware of set and um some of the other projects in that kind of space i haven't purchased a set to my knowledge <laughs> i may have, i may have 
I may have, you know, $1 worth of sets, but, um, but, but as you said, I, I do think that an, another super cool use case, uh, indexes makes a lot of sense. I think something like a, um, stable coin basket is also super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of, uh, you know, you, you might throw GUSD in there and USDC and true USD, maybe a bit of tether as well. And or tether might be difficult because it's not built on Ethereum. But uh, although actually, I think there was a an Ethereum version of tether that was supposed to be released or has been released. I can't quite remember. Um, but yeah, that would basically be a way to uh, spread counterparty risk across a variety of different stable coins. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that seems like a pretty cool use case as well. Yeah. Yeah. In the stablecoin example, then you could have like a meta stablecoin. So the, the, the set token itself, if it's representing a bunch of stablecoins, it might, it might be more stable than any single stablecoin. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think that's guaranteed. Uh, you, if you have, if you have some stablecoin that has some bad design mechanisms and it crashes and the price changes, you might've just been better off holding die for example that's true although uh you know die die definitely has its own risks involved which hopefully we we get to discuss uh later in this episode but yeah the theory is just that you know you kind of hedge your risk hedge your exposure to any single one of these um stablecoin issues right yeah, there's a there's a couple other applications of set that I wanted to touch on briefly here. Uh, so, when we start tokenizing real world assets, or even when we're start when we're tokenizing, for example, real estate, you can imagine imagine you have a bunch of buildings in some neighborhood, or imagine some some percentage of buildings around the world are tokenized. Their ownership is has been tokenized. You could then imagine that you take and you could take an entire neighborhood like Manhattan, Manhattan uh, uh, office space, and you could create a set that represents those tokens. So then you could have a set token that gives you exposure to, you know, an entire like real an entire portion of the real estate market. And if you had this, like if this was widespread and tokenized real estate becomes a thing, you could imagine. You could have these sets that represent cities, um, regions, neighborhoods, and then you could you could take a long position on Manhattan, for example, and you could short San Francisco, <laughs> which is, it's such a weird concept, but it's so interesting. I think I think it would be really powerful if we could do that. If we could really go long or short on just about anything. Uh, Another example is when, if we have tokenized things like art, then, and I, I, I wish I could remember where I got these examples from. Uh, it was, it was in a post or a podcast somewhere. So credit to whoever first thought of these, <laughs> but you could imagine in art, you could have a set representing a period or an artist. You know, you could have, if there's 50, 20 Van Gogh paintings that are, that the ownership is tokenized. You could have a set representing all of those, and then you could 
you could long or short different artists or periods uh, and so on. Yeah, that's uh, the the art one. Uh, one of my friends in the art world brought that up a couple months ago, and and that really captivated me. And it's just uh, such a hilarious concept being long, being long a whole movement. Um, you know, long cubism, short post impressionism, and uh, and in the, and in this kind of weird. Uh, decentralized fashion i i think another thing to to mention when it comes to sets especially in the the way that they can just replicate indexes is that uh you can really cut out some of the fees associated with indexes as well uh, right you know indexes i think compared to other instruments um traditionally have pretty low fees because it's just passive management but there are certain indexes, like I know ARK Invest has a couple ETFs of its own, and they charge, I think, you know, maybe one to two percent. I would have to, I would have to check. But there's certainly room for that to, for someone to come in and and kind of uh, cut those fees as well. Right. Yeah. So next thing i wanted to touch on briefly we only have 15 more minutes my coworker has to uh record another podcast so, so <laughs> we'll we can move move quickly through this. right so i wanted to talk about pr- uh, prediction markets a little bit just just kind of note that uh auger and veil um are running and veil veil seems to be doing quite well i saw a thread on twitter just recently from uh at destiner x not familiar <laughs> yeah yeah i hadn't i i wasn't following him but he credit to him so apparently Vale is now in the top three in trading volume among uh zero x relayers which is which is pretty cool so i i, so I checked i checked uh earlier today and it's actually uh just to be fully precise it's uh the fifth the fifth um relayer by by volume but i think it's it's pretty close for like fourth and third third place as well uh prediction markets are i i feel like i'm saying this about all the different use cases that you're bringing up but prediction markets are just absolutely fascinating and and just super super exciting to me i've been betting on uh, sports since i was 14 or 15 years old uh so it definitely appeals to my degenerate my degenerate nature and and i'm actually uh pretty upset that veil isn't available to to us customers right now hoping they can figure a way around that uh, soon sorry is it just the us that's excluded right now there might be some other jurisdictions as well but um I just know that they're not uh, they're not open to U.S. customers. I think they're actually in active conversations with the CFTC as well uh, to try and get something passed. But you know, essentially, all these prediction markets are just derivatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes sense that they would have to comply with some kind of regulation. Augur is just brilliant, and I'm so excited that it's uh, live and active. I I actually wrote a, a piece on Augur for the block a couple of weeks ago called The Power of Prediction Markets. And that was in response to a couple of prediction markets 
created by this guy called Shane Copeland, who's also based out here in New York. And these were governance-related prediction markets. So the idea is that anyone could come out and set a uh, create one of these prediction markets and set bounties in order to influence certain governance outcomes. Um, so whether that be rate of participation or simply, you know, trying to get a certain proposal passed. And that I think is just really worth some attention and some kind of discussion, perhaps not on this podcast, but just in general in the ecosystem. I don't think Mm -hmm. it's necessarily being talked about enough. Um, really that could be extended to any kind of outcome that affects these protocols. So when, um, when, if Ethereum's proof of stake goes live, uh, you can imagine some kind of adversary setting up a market that essentially sets a bounty in order to influence people to uh, not stake ETH. Right. Um, and thereby reducing... Uh, the network security, and then of course they could come in and stake themselves, um, take control of the network, and and profit through uh, the ensuing chaos or shorts or whatever. Yeah, um, and you could do the exact same thing for something like Bitcoin's hash rate as well. It's not just exclusive to to proof of stake consensus algorithms. So you could create a market and set a bounty so that, you know, uh, 10% of existing hash rate is uh, live over a certain period of time and sell a bunch of shares in favor of that outcome at a attractive price and profit from some kind of attack. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Augur is, is, is super cool and it, it really, you know, there's just the the first order of applications, which are kind of derivatives, uh, or maybe something like sports batting, whatever. Um, but then there's these these murkier markets as well, which I think are really going to challenge protocol designers who have to think about all these extraneous forces at play. And I don't have <laughs> any particular answers. Uh, it's going to take someone a lot smarter than me to figure these things out, but it's pretty interesting to think about, nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another really interesting thing about, or one of the things that can be built on top of prediction markets is something like a DAO democracy. So I'd love to talk about that sometime. Sometime I'll talk about that on the podcast, but Ralph Merkel wrote this paper introducing this idea of a DAO democracy where you use prediction markets to essentially to make the decisions that. Oh, like Futaki or yeah yeah i think it's it might be the exact same thing or ralph merkel might have uh changed a few i think he tweaked a few of the concepts because i think i think Futarchy was proposed by robin hansen and then i think ralph merkel made made some small changes so the other thing i wanted to talk about was uh decentralized exchanges particularly uniswap so i think most people will be familiar with Z- zero x um, but uniswap has been really seen a lot of usage lately so it's really interesting it's a totally different design than a typical uh, exchange there's 
it's a hundred percent on chain. There's no token. There's no fees to founders, which is, I guess, similar to, well, dissimilar to, to zero, zero X. Um, although I don't know if, if the zero X team takes, uh, any fee, I think they, they don't actually take any fee. The relayers can, can set the fees and, and receive the fees, but yeah, so the uh, the Xerox protocol itself doesn't take any fees, and then relayers basically get to decide whether they want to include some kind of fee, and they don't necessarily have to denominate that fee in, in ZRX if they don't want to. As far as I understand, most relayers right now don't charge a fee, and instead they just make markets themselves. Mm-hmm. Right, but with the Uniswap, there's... So on a typical exchange, there's an order book where... If I'm looking to sell some asset, I would choose a sell price and a quantity. And if I'm looking to buy, I would set uh, a buy price and some amount that I want to buy. And my seller buy order is either filled directly or it's filled by some market maker. And that's how the price is determined, is based on the, the trades that are actually completed and the price that they trade at. Where with Uniswap, there's there's no order book. There's essentially just a big, there's big piles of money, of tokens or ETH or whatever it is. And the buy and sell prices are determined algorithmically. And all the users of the system have to do is supply the token, supply the liquidity, and then they will earn some portion of the fees. I like this model in that it's far easier for the participants to, uh, like, for the liquidity providers to provide liquidity. All they have to do is just send the send the tokens to whatever contract it is. So they don't have to they don't have to babysit their the market. I just yeah, I had a couple uh, comments when it comes to Uniswap. Just firstly, it's another uh, yet another just amazing application to see live uh it is one that i have messed around with i don't currently provide liquidity just because uh i've been i guess too busy but uh definitely planning on on adding some in the near future couple uh there's been a, a couple i just want to shout out this this one guy um he he goes by the pseudonym of Blue Pintail, I think. Mm-hmm. But he's been publishing some some really fantastic content around Uniswap, which um, basically looks at uh, the extent to which providing liquidity is actually a, a profitable pro- profitable opportunity, because uh, if you're actually providing liquidity and the price of the tokens that you're um, submitting change, then you're actually losing money compared to a situation where you just hold and uh, where you just hold those tokens and just maintain a, a long position. Um, however, that's obviously counteracted by the fact that you're making uh, 0.3% on each trade. So this guy, Blue Pintail, or Gal, I'm not too sure, uh, has has put out some really cool data-driven analysis looking at the extent to which, you know, 
providing liquidity on different markets is is profitable or not. One thing I think that I've taken out of it is that there's a bit of a problem if the rate of liquidity outpaces trading volume, because as more liquidity is added, as a liquidity provider, your liquidity shares are, are diluted. Um, and so the per share return actually falls. Mm-hmm. So that hasn't been a problem so far. And I think Uniswap is on course to provide something like 20% returns to liquidity providers on an annual basis. Um, but as the protocol continues to grow, that's just something to look out for. We should reach some kind of uh, equilibrium point, you'd think, where there's some there's some return that the the liquidity providers require in order to to provide the liquidity. And there's probably some ratio from between the trading volume and the the size of the liquidity. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's actually really fascinating and and makes a lot of sense and. You would think that 20% annual return is kind of unsustainable. So, you know, does it fall to something like 5% or even as low as 2%? Probably not, actually. Probably not that low. Um, So what's interesting is that um, the the losses from change of the price change of of the underlying token is deterministic. Uh, I don't have the numbers up in front of me right now, but basically if the price of the, the one that I do remember off the top of my head is that if the price of the token uh, that you're providing as liquidity changes by 4x, so if it increases by 4x or uh, I guess conversely decreases by 80%, then as a liquidity liquidity provider you're um 20% worse off than if you had just held that token so obviously there is a, f- a fair amount of risk involved and you're going to need trading fees to counterbalance that risk of impermanent loss but yeah as you said i think it will eventually settle at some kind of equilibrium mm-hmm. but i I would have to imagine that it would be lower than 20% annual returns. Another interesting thing when it comes to Uniswap as well, and it's less about the mechanics of the protocol and more about the fact that, you know, Hayden um, has been very, very transparent that that he is uh, the founder and, and kind of core developer behind Uniswap. And, you know, we were just talking about Vale and their relationship with the CFTC. Uh, This commissioner from the CFTC came out a couple of weeks back and said that he would be in favor of bringing enforcement action against developers that, you know, don't register and and put out these smart contracts that can be used uh, for trading of unregistered securities or aren't necessarily implementing uh, KYC AML procedures. Um, And, you know, Uniswap is the epitome of a permissionless platform. So, yeah, just quite interesting to see him really own up to the fact that he uh, is the founder and not take a more uh, 
uh, Satoshi approach, which is to just remain pseudonymous and try and skirt enforcement that way. Yeah, and like we talked about a minute ago, I think the the Uniswap founder he earns nothing at all from Uniswap, and so that's that's pretty interesting. But in in the case of Uniswap, well, I guess it depends on how much uh, maintenance needs to be done. Like maybe something like Uniswap can just run sort of automatically once it reaches some point. But yeah, very very cool. Uh, a couple more points about Uniswap. They have. So in the last week, I think you tweeted this like half an hour ago, but the they've had over 1 million in volume in the Ethereum DAI pair in the past week. And then over 4 million volume for all pairs over the past week, which is pretty impressive. And yeah, the, the Uniswap Twitter, they tweeted out that the liquidity providers have earned over $12,000 in fees in the past week, which would work out to uh, 21% annualized returns, which you mentioned a bit. Yeah, uh, and another interesting thing just to mention as far as volume is is how it uh, stacks up versus uh, the zero X relays. Um, so combined the top five relays, which are Radar Relay, Paradex, uh, Ocean, Veil, and another one I can't quite remember the name of, I think combined across all pairs of the last seven days did $1.3 million worth of volume. Um, so I really think that speaks volumes, no pun intended, as to, um, <laughs> as to uh, you know, um, how these different approaches when it comes to DEXs can, uh, you know, some are, are clearly more popular than others. And, I think it's worth taking a deeper dive into why that has been the case so far and whether that's a trend that we can expect to continue over the coming months and years. Yeah, another one that we'll, we'll just touch on briefly is DAI. I think Maker DAI is probably the success story of the year so far. So uh, there's been in the past, okay, this is in the past 24 hours, there's been about 1.1 million die minted and 280,000 burned and the total supply is about 80 million 80 million die so 80 million dollars and there's over 2 million eth locked in cdps right now which is pretty cool uh, another benefit too of this having all this ether locked up is it reduces the circulating supply and should push price up a little bit Another really interesting thing with that's related to DAI a little bit is the Aztec Protocol people have, I don't know if this is live yet, but they, they're they working on or have released a zero-knowledge ERC-20 implementation. And I think DAI was their first token that they sort of used this um, standard to create so again i don't know if the zero knowledge die is uh running right now but i find that fascinating that you could have well zero knowledge proofs in, in general are fascinating and having a zero knowledge token is really interesting to think about and especially especially if it's a stable coin because 
that's kind of like it's that's like real digital cash, right? If you can have a stable coin that is fully opaque that nobody can see anything about, um, it's like digital cash, which was kind of the the whole dream behind this whole thing that started ten years ago. Yeah, that's why we started, right? Yeah, so Maker obviously amazing. Um, if I had to say what the success story has been over the last year, I, I would probably have to go with Uniswap just because of its origins. Uh, Maker is, is, is a, a close second, but the fact that Uniswap just almost appeared overnight, I know it didn't quite happen like that. And uh, I think Vitalik first posted this this Uniswap thesis a couple of years ago, but really did emerge overnight. There wasn't any token sale. Uh, it was led by just a single developer and is already out-competing 0x for volume. I just think that's uh, kind of unbelievable. Aztec stuff is, is definitely super interesting. I was looking at their contract yesterday, and you're right that I think their first implement- implementation was of DAI. Um, as far as I know, it's still very expensive to actually generate these proofs. I think it's uh, 900,000 gas. Um, and funnily enough, this team at ETH Denver created something similar, but for XDAI, so that's DAI on the Proof of Authority Network. Um, and I think similarly, it, it was around 900,000 gas to actually generate these proofs, so pretty expensive. Uh, and, and possibly kind of infeasible if if you just want to um, transfer small amounts of DAI. I think there's this, as you said, the you know private DAI is kind of the that's the game changer right there. That that really is uh, as close as we have possibly got to uh, digital cash. You know truly fungible, private, uh, stable. I think there is this really interesting tension, though, between DAI and Ether when it comes to money. So if Ether isn't actually being used as a medium of exchange, if it's in, or, or a unit of account, you know, can it still retain its monetary premium um, just from being used as collateral in applications like Maker? And especially once you consider the emergence of multi-collateral DAI, uh, which I don't think is particularly straightforward. But uh, if, if you think about multi-collateral DAI and all these other assets coming in as collateral, that, again, kind of takes the edge off of Ether's significance. And so I think there's still a lot of open questions as to what that really means for Ether's value capture. And obviously, as we're, we're both aware, it's really important that Ether does maintain a significant role and, and does continue to um, maintain a monetary premium because, you know, under proof of stake, uh, the network security is, is pretty much proportional to uh, the value of Ether being staked. Um, so I'm not entirely sure how you would go about explicitly designing for this you know, value balance between Ether and DAI, but I think it's really important that people continue to look into this tension. Yeah, I think it's a really important question. And definitely Ether does 
as far as I can tell, and I think most people would agree, yeah, Ether does need to maintain high value in order for the network to be secure. And if you have all of these things built on top of Ether, but then on, on top of Ethereum, but then the, the Ethereum token uh, doesn't have a high value, then it undermines the entire system. So yeah, it'll be, we need to figure out some way to keep the, you know, the price of Ether up, I guess. <laughs> so. Yeah. But, uh, and, and, and it's super weird because, you know, it would, it would be a massive shame if you had to kind of introduce these artificial inefficiencies in order to maintain Ether's value and, and to encourage it to be used as the primary medium of exchange. But, but, but clearly it's important that, uh, that it does retain some kind of, uh, significant value just on the topic of multi-collateral die i don't know if you have any thoughts as to what kind of assets would be suitable as alternative collateral i've continued to struggle there um but interested if you've thought that through Uh, i haven't i haven't spent too much time thinking about that but maybe we could talk about that in a another episode because I'm well over my hour limit and my coworker is going to get mad at me. So <laughs> we'll need to wrap up now and then, and then, yeah, if you want to come, come on the show another time, that'd be awesome. I'd love to. Yeah. Thanks a lot for coming on. So thanks everyone for listening. If you don't mind, please rate and subscribe. If you have a topic idea or if you want to potentially be a guest, email me at fault at membrane.net. We have an Instagram that's, membrane labs you can do you mind if i give your twitter handle please do (laughs) so you can follow mateo it's teo t-e-o underscore Leibowitz l-e-i-b-o-w-i-t-z and the block is at the block underscore underscore and i'm at jordan mmck we also have a another podcast which i mentioned it's called Off Key. My coworker does it. It's really good. She it covers the music industry, so very different topic, but very cool. And both of these podcasts are produced by Membrane Entertainment Canada. We're a music services and distribution company, and we're exploring blockchain tech and figuring out how we can help people in the music industry get paid. If you're in Victoria, we rent out the studio, so if you want to record your own podcast, you can email us. Uh, You can email us at the email I gave earlier or go to membranelabs.com. And that's it. Is there anything else you wanted to say, Mateo? Uh, No, I don't think so. Other than just thank you, Jordan, um, for bringing me onto the podcast and and hosting. Uh, Really enjoyed the conversation. And yeah, hopefully we can do a part two because I feel like we still have a lot of topics to cover. Yeah, I think we could go on for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. All right, awesome. Thanks a lot. See you all in two weeks.